0: The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today, we're heading to London, England, where a string of recent murders in a nearby park seems to indicate the presence of a supernatural evil lurking in the mist. Meanwhile, the newly engaged Phyllis Allenby is suddenly plagued by nightmares and begins to grapple with the possibility that there may be some truth to the stories about an Allenby family curse, that her bloodline carries the curse of the werewolf. With her wedding fast approaching and the body count rising, can Phyllis finally end the curse once and for all? Grab some silver bullets and join us in the park as we discuss She-Wolf of London. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive! You're crazy! Tell you who I am, and what I am! <laughs> You're insane. I tell you I killed a wolf, a
1: plain ordinary wolf. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how light evolved, how it adapted itself to this world.
0: He went for a little walk. He should have seen his insane. <laughs> Welcome to The Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monsters series. Today we're talking about the 1946 film She-Wolf of London. I'm the Invisible Dan Colon, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, who may or may not be a werewolf. I'm not exactly sure. Monster Mike Manzi, how are you?
1: Yeah, just the Mike Manzi today. No monster about, as far as I could tell, in the classical sense, that is. But here we are.
0: So the Universal monsters, Mike, are dead, really. Yeah. By 1946, Universal had effectively rung out all the scares they could out of their iconic monsters, and She-Wolf of London was the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. It's a sort of a death knell for the films that had put Universal on the map and had helped keep them afloat over the past two decades. We will, of course, see them take one more big swing in the monster territory as we get into the Atomic Age, but that won't be for another couple of episodes. Here we've got a film that reaches all the way back to 1935 for some inspiration, borrowing the Werewolf of London title, but virtually nothing else. There's not even a werewolf in this movie, which probably has something to do with the fact that Jack Pierce was on his way out at this point. No, instead we get a very run-of-the-mill murder mystery with a lot of sizzle and not a whole lot of steak. It's a classic bait-and-switch. In fact, this sort of mystery story had been replicated many times by 1946, and judging by the contemporary reviews, She-Wolf of London did very little to stimulate audiences who could see the twist ending coming a mile away. Now, I hesitate to call this one the worst that we've seen up to this point, but maybe it is? There are some things that I really like about it, but this late in the game, to introduce a brand new character and not even deliver on the spectacle seems like a bad play on Universal's part. I mean, at least the Invisible Woman had an Invisible Woman. But what do you think, Mike? I assume this was your first time with She-Wolf of London. I'm really curious to know how this one landed for you
1: yeah this was my first time with this movie and a lot to absorb yeah kind of felt a little blindsided not gonna lie like immediate response first impressions but i'll agree this is not the worst that we've sat through in fact i'm not gonna say it's one of my favorites or anything but i kind of dug this movie because of how strange and different it was just for what it is on its own now definitely yes all the monsters are either cured or dead multiple times over so i understand them needing to sort to take a break from all that and start up fresh and new, but I was pretty shocked to find out that we don't get a transformation and nobody is actually a werewolf in this movie. However, for what it is, I was very entertained. (laughs) Yes, I called it, but This felt to me much more like um, some masterpiece theater episode. One of those old drawing room dramas. Very small cast. Kind of like a whodunit pointing fingers at each other sort of mystery. And Dan, if I'm not mistaken, is something that they toyed with doing originally with The Wolfman it just being a psycho thriller. Sort of the idea that uh, it's all in one's head or sort of one believing they're a werewolf when they're actually not to some extent. Mm -hmm. Also sort of shades of Val Luton here as well when, you know, there's a guy who never always delivered on the monster either a lot of implication but not always like you say the spectacle is missing from time to time in some of that stuff nevertheless still enjoyable to multiple degrees not entirely successful overall
0: yeah it's funny that you mentioned val luton because i just recently watched cat people and that does a lot of what She Wolf of London is trying to do, but I think it does it in a way that is way better than She Wolf of London. And so I think the reason why I consider She Wolf of London, maybe the worst we've seen is that, you know, it doesn't offer up a monster and the formula has been well tread by this point, right? This movie is not providing something that audiences had never seen before right if it had done that i feel like i could give it a little more credit but yeah it's a strange place for universal right we've concluded the frankenstein monsters story arc the wolfman and dracula story arcs those are all done we've had more than our fair share of mummy movies and we've had four or five invisible band movies so If you're going to do one more, like who's the character you're going to do? I feel like everything's kind of been played to death. Yeah. So I don't blame them for trying to create something new as sort of like a last ditch effort, you know, just to wring some more money out of these horror films. But where this does succeed for me is not enough to really make it stand out from the rest of the Universal Monster films or really any of the other horror of the time. I think Val Lewton really had a lock on that sort of unseen horror. But I do really like the cinematography in this. I think that the park scenes with the Fog are all very effective in what they're trying to accomplish there. I think those are the creepiest sequences overall. But yeah, when I say this is the worst thing we've seen, I don't mean to say that it's absolutely dog shit. For me, this is the least remarkable of the ones we've seen up to this point. Yeah. Invisible Woman at least had an Invisible Woman. It just didn't really feel like a member of the club. This feels like a horror movie, but it's not really doing anything better than anything we've seen. And so by virtue of that, I think I have to put it at the bottom of my list. It's not necessarily a knock on it that it sounds like, but I have to say in terms of expectations and and my overall disappointment, the gulf here is probably the biggest so far.
1: Yeah, I I see where you're coming from. I guess for me, it stands apart on its own simply because of how odd it is and how it is trying to stray from the formula and glom some of that Val Luton style and it's like it just can't pull it off. It's not that sophisticated Universal is gimmick kind of stuff, you know? It is more just about like the shock and awe for the most part. Like People come, they want to see the monster. They really don't give a shit about the story because we've had the same story over and over again for the most part. So it is a little funny that even... On that end, they're not really delivering with a a super strong mystery to any degree, you know? We only, again, have about an hour and a minute to tackle all this. I give them an A for effort. And I do think that there is some really fine acting going on here and and some pretty strong directing. Now, I suppose you could say when we get into the story a little bit more that Miss Winthrop is the real she-wolf here. She doesn't transform, but clearly has gone mad to some degree. So it would have been fun if they did a she-wolf of America And she popped back up. They kind of tried to own it in that way and make this their like psychological wing of the universal horror. You know, more Hitchcock kind of stuff, more like no monster, but like the person, which we've gotten into from time to time, but they've always sort of shied away from that later because they don't want the humans to look bad. Right, right. I could only imagine the disappointment, Dan, of being there in 1946 and just being, like, utterly disappointed, right? Yeah. From this angle, from that we're approaching all these movies and from where we are, like, I probably would hate this movie if I was just, like, watching it as a random, but because of, like, this journey we're on, like, it's just so curious to me how we got here to this point and everything. Like, this movie, it for in some way, makes so much sense, yet doesn't. Right. I'm not going to be, like, praising it. I just don't want to try But I do understand how easily it could be trashed.
0: Oh, yeah, 100%. And I agree with you that viewing these movies through this lens, you know, from the perspective of a podcaster who's going to be like celebrating these movies, it has given me a new appreciation for movies that like, I think when I first saw this one years ago, whenever it was, you know, I watched it by itself. I thought, oh, it's a universal monster movie I hadn't seen yet. And then I put it on and I was like, what the hell is this? My expectations, you know, were super high. And it was just not what I was looking for. I was really upset with it. And, you know, of course, we're looking at it as a part of this franchise, I guess, for lack of a better word, yep. that Universal had back in th- at the beginning of Hollywood filmmaking, right? So to look at it as a member of that canon, it gives me a different perspective. And I did end up liking it more than I had in the past. But at the same time, I can't make it seem better than it is. You know, it's still pretty disappointing for me. Yeah, yeah. There is a lot to love here, even as a curiosity.
1: It is a little strange, though, because it was the last monster they needed to make a woman out of, right? Like, they did it with Dracula's daughter, the invisible woman, the mummy.
0: Yeah, we've got a woman in the lead role who might be a werewolf. And we've been, like, starving for really strong female leads. And, man, I just wish she had been a werewolf.
1: Any of them, for that matter. Yeah. Didn't have to be Phyllis.
0: No, it didn't. Even though you didn't see the transformation in Cat People, there was a a woman who changed into a giant cat.
1: Yes, there is a supernatural element, like an undeniable one in that. In this, she uses the lore as hysteria to like drum up a cover story of some type. So that was kind of fun when we get into that. Like It's those kinds of angles they take with the idea of monsters. This one's the most grounded, I guess we would say.
0: Yeah, I think this is the only one we've seen so far without any supernatural element, right? Yep. It's not surprising looking back on it now that after the release of She-Wolf of London Universal had pretty much decided they were going to stop making horror films altogether. That wouldn't last forever, of course, but we don't get a straight horror film again until the 50s, until we get to The Creature from the Black Lagoon. So we're going to get a string of comedies in between. But yeah, this was effectively the last like horror film Universal wanted to make for a while. And they were still kind of doing thrillers and stuff, but 1946 is really kind of the end of that golden age of universal horror got it they had dressed to kill in 1946 time of their lives and the brute man starts becoming more
1: noir heavy i would imagine yeah, which you know we argue is that horror too some of it.
0: I mean, there were a couple instances where the line between horror and noir I couldn't find it. It's definitely pushed its way into horror territory, at least on this podcast. So, all right, well, let's get into the production here. I don't have a whole lot of notes. There wasn't a whole lot to find, unfortunately. But by 1946, House of Dracula was playing the local neighborhood grindhouses, and as I mentioned before, the Universal monsters were pretty much dead. She will. London had been announced in late 1944, about a year before the cameras would actually start rolling on this project. And it was promised to producer Ben Pivar, who had just been given a promotion at Universal in November of that year. So, this, I guess, from Ben Pivar's perspective, this could have been a really cool project, but I don't think he knew what he was going to get. And Universal said, "Here, take She-Wolf of London." So he, he must have been disappointed that he didn't get something a little more prestigious after that promotion. So my guess is that you know Universal had this in the release schedule since 1944, and it's already in pre-production. We're not going to waste money. They just threw it, rushed it into production, and spent as little money as possible on it. And that's why, largely, it is the way it is. Okay. Pivar brought on director Jean Yarborough as well as June Lockhart, Don Porter, Sarah Hayden, Jan Wiley, Forrester Harvey, and Una O'Connor to fill out the cast. Two of those actors, you'll notice, didn't make it into the finished film. Una O'Connor was dropped in favor of Eileen Malian and Forrester Harvey, who you'll remember played Una O'Connor's husband in The Invisible Man, died suddenly on December 14, 1945. It's believed he would have played Detective Latham. Jean Yarbrough began his film career in 1922 as a prop man before working his way up to assistant director. By 1936, he was directing comedy and musical shorts for RKO. His feature-length debut came in 1938 with Rebellious Daughters, but it was in the 1940s and 50s when Yarbrough achieved his greatest success, directing Abbott and Costello and Bowery Boys comedies, as well as some horrors, including The Devil Bat, starring Bela Lugosi and House of Horrors starring Rondo Hatton as The Creeper. Nice. The screenplay was written by George Bricker, based on a story by Dwight V. Babcock. Bricker, you may recall, also wrote House of Dracula. Production began on December 8th and wrapped on the 21st, three days over schedule. Now, the set looks familiar. That's because the film was shot on Universal's Hacienda set, which was also used for many other Westerns at that time. Oh. Okay. Let's get into the cast. June Lockhart as Phyllis Allenby. She was the daughter of actors Jean and Kathleen Lockhart, and she made her theatrical debut as a ballerina at the Metropolitan Opera when she was eight years old. By the time she got She-Wolf of London, she had appeared alongside Betty Davis in All This and Heaven 2 in 1940, and Gary Cooper in Sergeant York in 1941. When recalling her experience on She-Wolf of London, she said, quote, Oh, She-Wolf of London was fun to do. If I'm remembering right, I was just submitted for it by my agent. I did it, and I was not very good in it. But the following year, I was the hot ingenue on Broadway in a wonderful comedy. So I guess what I needed in She Wolf of London was good direction. Well, I guess the director was a good one. But the film was of the genre that they did at Universal. I think it only took two weeks to shoot. That was so early in my experience, I was still learning the technique of film acting. There were a lot of English people in it who were friends of my father's. So there again, it was not strange or unusual or awkward. Don Porter was my leading man and he was dear. End quote. I
1: liked her in this. I thought she did pretty well. You know, she's kind of just playing that one note the whole movie, unfortunately, which is I think I'm a werewolf and I'm kind of scared shitless (laughs) about that. But I guess there's a few moments earlier that are really nice where she seems super confident and competent and all this. You know, there's that nice bet sequence we'll talk about with her fiance when they're riding and everything. So I thought she did very fine in this movie for what she was given to do, that is.
0: Yeah, I think she's largely failed by the script. You know, the character is not really written to be very dynamic. And so, yeah, she spends most of the movie just, like, she has no agency. She's just a victim the entire time and spends the entire movie just worried that she's going to become a werewolf. That Broadway show she referred to was 1947's For Love or Money, which by most accounts was a mediocre show, but it did launch her to Broadway stardom. After the 1940s, her work on screen was largely for television, where she did a lot of shows before landing her career-defining role as Maureen Robinson on Lost in Space in 1965.
1: Awesome. Yeah, and looking at her bio here, she's in a lot of cool movies that I loved, uh, at least like, but like weird movies like Chud 2, Bud the Chud, or like Strange Invaders, or, or Troll 1 with the notorious Troll 2 as its sequel, but she's in the first one and really cool. It did a lot of fun stuff.
0: She's one of those actors, and a lot of these actors are going to have the same issue, but she had so many credits, it's tough to really narrow it down. Of course, everybody knows her as Maureen Robinson, so yeah, thank yeah. you for bringing up Troll and Chud 2. Got to look out for those Chuds,
1: man, you know, cannibalistic, humanoid underground dwellers, right? Is it?
0: <laughs> so Don Porter played Barry Landfield. He was a prolific American actor of stage, film, television, and radio. He began acting in dramatic roles on the radio at age 17 before trying transitioning to the stage in 1936. Over the course of his career, he performed in over 200 plays, including Plaza Suite in 1967 and The Front Page in 1968. Now, you may be familiar with The Front Page as being the basis for His Girl Friday. It's also been adapted a bunch of other times. He also did a ton of TV, guest starring on Green Acres, Love American Style, The Mod Squad, Barnaby Jones, The Six Million Dollar Man, Hawaii Five-O, and Three's Company.
1: Alright, yeah. Looks here, this is uh, important to me, he's in an Elvis movie. Live
0: a little, love a little. I was just about to say. Film-wise, he appeared in the 1968 Elvis Presley film Live a Little, Love a Little, which have you guys talked about that on Viva Pod Vegas yet?
1: We have not talked about that. I've not gotten there yet, so I have no clue what that's about, but I very much look forward to catching Don Porter hanging out with Elvis Presley.
0: <laughs> he was also in 1972's The Candidate with Robert Redford, among others. But most people would probably know him for playing Russell Lawrence on the 1960 sitcom Gidget. I like him in this,
1: too. Like, he is pretty much the only guy in the movie for the whole movie, his hair he had sort of like a his like hair, a, yep. yeah, right? Man, it was so slick. I was like, How do
0: I get those waves in my hair? We've got Sarah Hayden as Martha Winthrop, she was another stage performer, made her film debut in 1934 in the Catherine Hepburn film Spitfire, and later appeared as a humorless truant officer in the 1936 Shirley Temple comedy Captain January, as well as Miss Pips in the 1941 Our Gang comedy Come Back, Miss Pips. All right, she made other appearances in in The Shop Around the Corner and Woman of the Year. She is probably best known for playing Aunt Polly in Mickey Rooney's Andy Hardy movies, if you've ever seen those.
1: Cool, cool. And and, uh, she was in Mad Love, one of my favorite it's a crazy horror movie Peter Lorre movie that, yes. that's a real fun one she's in there somewhere so you said she played like a truant officer those are her vibes this whole movie and I think mm-hmm. she is terrifying at times in this movie <laughs> and at other times she she's like so loving and motherly and so I personally think I think she's my favorite performance in the film so she's got a really tough role there's one scene that I'm still not sure what the hell's going on Okay, <laughs> when she reveals the truth to her daughter but there's yeah, I yeah. feel like there's a scene like that in all of these movies where you and I are like, mm, not exactly sure what's
0: happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a tough time seeing her play comedic characters because I don't really know her from anything else. Like, I'm familiar with The Shop Around the Corner, I've seen it, but I don't remember her in it. I don't think I've seen any of the Shirley Temple movies. She's got this history of doing comedy, but I only really know her from this. And I think the movie does her a disservice a little bit because, yes, she's playing that domineering kind of stern enforcer around the house, but then also kind of is this loving aunt. But like the movie telegraphs the reveal way in advance. So like the entire time I'm questioning her motives. I never really believe that she's being kind. Yeah. So I would love to see her in something else where she's not automatically projected as the villain.
1: Yeah, I was kind of getting like the mom from Titanic vibes off of her, right? Sure. E- except yep. like in yep. Titanic, you get a little more like empathy for that mom. Like why she's doing what she's doing is a little more clear, I think, than Miss Winthrop. But
0: That's a good analogy because they both have a scene where they talk about if you don't marry this person, we're ruined. They each have that motivation. But I just didn't feel a whole lot of sympathy for Martha Winthrop.
1: Kind of an interesting study in like the same idea played totally different in a way.
0: Her daughter, Carol Winthrop, was played by Jan Wiley. She appeared in 39 films over the course of her career, mostly supporting in minor roles in Hollywood B-movies. She Wolf of London is probably her most famous film. Didn't really see a whole lot else worth mentioning, but I do think she's pretty solid here this is gonna
1: sound the wrong way but like she kind of looks like every one of those starlets right like she stands out in this movie because she looks like a hollywood actress and it kind of was a little jarring right because everyone else looks is sort of so believable and it's like the acting that is really coming through and with her i was kind of like blinded by the beauty and i don't know if that was supposed to be part of the character i just feel like she kind of had the least to do with a role that really could have had a lot of meat to it, right? Like we'll get to it, but like she's let in on a secret and, I just feel like there's sort of like a wasted opportunity maybe with the character not so much the actor playing it
0: I think the casting may have been intentional because she does draw the eye and if you remember Barry suspects her first as the killer and so I feel like she stands out intentionally maybe that's not executed as well as it could be but I, I do think that we are meant to notice her right I think she is meant to stand out in this cast for that reason now it's not the most clever of red herrings but I could see that being the motivation to cast somebody who is so wildly different looking than the rest. That's my own supposition.
1: But I think that's a good point because, you know, she really does draw the eye and like the whole concept of like the red herring is to be a distraction from the actual mm-hmm. culprit. Now, you know, even I knowing who is responsible here, at one point I was like, is she the werewolf? <laughs> like Maybe she's going yeah. <laughs> to turn into the werewolf, but unfortunately, nay.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, in that scene where Barry accuses her of being the she-wolf, it had been quite some time since I had last watched the movie and I had forgotten uh, the specifics and I thought, wait a minute, is she? I was like, I'm pretty sure it was the ant the whole time. And then I'm like, wait a minute, did, am I misremembering? Is she the she-wolf? Because that's a hell of a twist. And then no, of course not. The movie unfolded the way I'd expected it to. But yeah, that would have been a hell of a twist to have her be an actual she-wolf or, or at least have her be the killer. But no, she is everything she appears to be. We got Lloyd Corrigan as Detective Latham. He was the son of actors James and Lillian Corrigan. He was a bit of a Renaissance man. His career began in the 1920s and lasted almost to his death in 1969. And in that time, he was a producer, a director, a screenwriter, and an actor across a wide variety of films and TV shows. I took a look at his filmography and across all of that, his directing work, his writing and acting work, I really didn't see a whole lot of stuff that I was familiar with personally, although I did notice he wrote a couple of the Warner Oland Fu Manchu movies in the 1920s. Yeah, I'm just
1: looking at his filmography here, but I, I noticed a couple things. It's a mad, 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 mad world. Yes. The Manchurian Candidate. So like he's in stuff. I just don't recognize him from those things per se, but I love him in this movie. This was like the kind of character, I don't want to say missing. Maybe I never realized I was kind of missing this guy from a couple of the last movies, but the inspector who's really wants to get down to the bottom of it, that isn't a skeptic because most of the time I realized, Dan, that it's one of the townsfolk or like one of the main players who's like a barrister or some shit and they're like a lawyer right or like a pharmacist or something and they're like they're the one that is like it's a werewolf or this or that i was loving that it was the detective right out of the gate being like we're dealing with a werewolf here and he's also just got such a great disposition too. this character this actor the way he's playing such like a lovable kind of guy too that i hated to see him die (laughs) like that was such a hard death i
0: think that you know when we were 25 movies in here i think it would be a lot to ask the audience to believe that maybe it's not a werewolf. You know what I mean? I think it was a smart move to have an important character come right out of the gate and say, I think it's a werewolf. This movie is just over like an hour long. What is it? It's 61 minutes. We don't have time to be questioning whether or not there's a werewolf. So immediately, in the first couple minutes, there's a werewolf. Okay. And then the movie spends the next 50 some odd minutes proving to you that it's not. So it's sort of like a reverse werewolf movie. Yeah,
1: with like the characters and the plot to that effect, right?
0: (laughs) Which Yeah, I think this is kind of cool. Dennis Hoey plays Inspector Pierce. He's a big dude, isn't he? Oh my God, yeah. Really intimidating guy. He was a British actor who is most well known for playing Inspector Lestrade in six of Universal's Sherlock Holmes movies. I have a little bit of trouble imagining him playing Lestrade, mostly because in terms of, like, I'm not really familiar with the old Sherlock Holmes movies, but I think of the Lestrade they had in Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes movies. I forget the actor's name, but he's this little guy, and like, I can only ever picture Lestrade as being kind of a smaller dude.
1: I might be thinking of the guy who played Sherlock's brother in those movies. Was that Robbie
0: Coltrane as Mycroft? That was. Stephen Fry.
1: Who names their kids Sherlock and Mycroft in the first place? <laughs> 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 you have got to be crazy people to do that.
0: So, yeah, that, that's sort of his claim to fame playing Lestrade. Martin Kozlak, we've seen before. He was Rogheb in The Mummy's Curse. And here he plays Dwight Severn.
1: Yeah, I recognize him now. Okay, cool. Yeah, and I was so bummed that he didn't show up earlier in this movie. I feel like it's almost a running gag. You know, where's Dwight? Where's Dwight? I was like, he didn't come in. He didn't never showed up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, apparently he looked back fondly on this production, and he often thought of it as a consolation prize for playing so many heavies. If you remember from our Mummy's Curse episode, I think I talked about his career often playing like Nazis and things. He always played bad guys. So here we get to see him just kind of play a suitor who uh, gets attacked. Poor Dwight.
1: <laughs> also says he was in Batman 66, Dan. We might have mentioned it back in the Mummy episode, but I, I can't find the credit in who he was in Batman 66, but it just it's just one of those... Strange connections to the show for some reason.
0: Oh, well, now I need to know who he was. Hang on. It says he was Professor Charm.
1: Okay, must have been a one-off villain
0: then. He was in two episodes. Yeah, so
1: everyone had at least two episodes. They were two-parters, and they were an hour long each, and they would air one day after the other, actually. It was like a Tuesday and Wednesday or something, but very cool. Yeah, love it. Got to get a wiki together of all of the Universal Monster-Batman crossover connections.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think the logical next step is is a Batman 66 podcast. Don't even (laughs) joke about that with me, Dan. (laughs) You know I'm there. So we have Eileen Malian as Hannah, the housekeeper. This is the role that would have gone to Una O'Connor. She was a British character actor of stage and screen whose career lasted from about 1900 to the 1940s. Typical of character actors, she has a long list of credits across many genres, many of them uncredited roles. But we have seen her before. She played a character named Miss Peabody. It was an uncredited role. She was Miss Peabody, a nurse in Dracula's Daughter.
1: Excellent.
0: She was one of those typical character actors, did a lot of stuff, just showed up here and there, never got credit.
1: Like June Lockhart, she was also in a bunch of Lassie, it seems. She was in some Shirley Temple, like Miss Hayden, wasn't she in some of that Shirley Temple stuff? Yeah, she's in I Married a Witch. She's in a lot of good stuff. Mark of the Vampire, it's quite a career here.
0: Her list was so intimidating, I didn't even bother. I was just like, let me look for some Universal Monster stuff. But yeah, definitely a great addition to this cast. Although, knowing that Uno O'Connor was supposed to play this character, I feel like she could have delivered some of this dialogue a lot better. Eileen Malian really brings a, a different energy to it, but she still is kind of funny at, at times. I just think of what Uno O'Connor could have done with, with that role.
1: You see, okay, so there's not a shred of comedy anywhere. Like, right. not even unintentionally funny stuff happens to me. And yep. no one's ever cracking a joke. I feel like at some point, like, when they had to recast the role or something, like, we have to tone this down a little bit. I feel like they went more with the gypsy kind of idea mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. they would have yep. with, like, the wacky innkeeper or or even the sort of, like, grandma sort of character. Or not the grandma, but like the nanny or, you know, the housekeeper kind of idea. Because when she walked on screen, I was like, oh, this is sort of like the stand-in for our gypsy this time. Time, but that was mostly based on kind of her appearance from this. And I think she, she played it pretty well. Not very much to do here again, but but still does it well.
0: Yeah, I mean, she gets a couple moments that are like as light as it gets. There's a knock at the door. I think that it is Detective Latham, and he asks her if she's the woman of the house. And she says, I'm a woman, but I, I just work here, or something like that. And I thought that was kind of funny. And, and I just think of, again, how Uno O'Connor might have delivered that line. Considering how there really isn't any serious comedy in this movie, that might have been a welcome presence, you know, if they had one character who was kind of the comic relief. Maybe that would have made the tone just a little more dynamic, maybe a little more interesting yeah Again, I don't want to knock Eileen Mallian's performance here. I think she does a perfectly fine job. You know, Knowing Uno O'Connor was supposed to play the role, I can't help but wonder what she could have done differently. Frederick Warlock plays Constable in Charge Ernie Hobbs. I don't know how, how much we will be discussing him, but he was another prolific British actor who began on stage in a 1906 production of Henry V. His film work consists largely of supporting roles in films such as the 1941 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, How Green Was My Valley. Spartacus and 101 Dalmatians, as well as a number of universal Sherlock Holmes films.
1: Including a 1966 Elvis film called Spin Out. So <laughs> I guess I'm going <laughs> to have to keep my eye open for Frederick Warlock as well in the near future.
0: It's so funny. I love how much crossover there is.
1: Over on Vivo Pa Vegas, I mentioned multiple times how much I wish Elvis had done a horror movie. It would have been amazing. Oh, 100%. As a vampire or a vampire hunter or some kind of monster run. Like, could you picture him in The Blob instead of Steve McQueen?
0: That would have been really cool. I'm trying to think if he had done like a horror movie. Okay, so if we were to put Elvis in a universal monster movie, who would you have him play? The
1: Wolfman, definitely. He's the (laughs) Wolfman. He's got like the puppy dog eyes that all the girls want him. Like he's got that sexual attraction. It's the moon. He would be a great werewolf. I would love that. He'd be such a sexy Dracula too. It's hard to choose.
0: I just don't buy that sort of innocent boyish Elvis as uh, like evil. Good
1: call. Good call. Yeah. I stick with the wolf, man.
0: He's certainly handsome enough to play Dracula, but I feel like he would have a better time playing Larry Talbot. I believe him as a Larry Talbot, who's like sort of a monster against his will. You know, he's sort of had this thrust upon him. That could have been fun.
1: That would have been so good.
0: So that's pretty much it for the principal cast. I do have a couple production notes here. According to actor Don Porter, the final hours of shooting, were an absolute nightmare he said quote the scene in the buggy was a process shot it took hours they never got the process right they closed the set so people couldn't get away and go to all the christmas parties on the other sets we damn near starved to death we smuggled in some sandwiches and finally they got the process right i was focused and got the words right the director said cut print that's a wrap and before i could get out of the buggy and help june the set was cleared everybody left (laughs) the bee smoke that they used in the park scenes made it very difficult to talk if you had a scene they'd roll that stuff in at about ankle height and then it would rise Trying to do lines and keep from choking was a little difficult end quote.
1: There is a lot of fog. Like, I get that it's London, but I was like, you guys, like, this is cartoonish at times, you know? A
0: lot of fog.
1: I never occurred to me that that would, like, impede your speech or anything, right? Like, it would taste bad or smell foul or all that kind of thing, but...
0: He referenced bee smoke. Now, I should clarify that the, that, that was in quotes, so I don't know that it was legitimately, like, the bee smoke. I don't really know what that fog was. Okay. But I, I do have to imagine whatever it was, it was actually difficult to uh, deliver lines through that.
1: And I also just love the idea of everybody clearing the set before the director even yells cut. Like they want to get out of there (laughs) so bad. Like you turn around to deliver your last line and there's like no one behind the camera. They're like already halfway across the stage.
0: (laughs) I read that production ended on December 21st, but I also read somewhere that they had come back up until Christmas Eve to do like some reshoots.
1: Oh, that's terrible.
0: It's possible that that process shot on the carriage was Christmas Eve and everybody oh, just wanted to go home. That's even worse. Okay. I just
1: imagine it was around Christmas. I didn't know they were going to work on Christmas to finish this movie. It's not worth it to finish yeah. this movie.
0: No. She Wolf of London premiered in New York on April 5th, 1946, before going wide on May 17th as part of a double bill with The Cat Creeps, their last horror double feature of the 1940s. So, this thing didn't even come out on its own. It pretty much released as part of a double feature. Both The Cat Creeps and She Wolf of London came out at the same time and they came out as a double bill. So, I don't think there's a whole lot of faith in either of these movies. In the UK, the film was released as The Curse of the Allenbys which may be a better title, considering. But it, I mean, like, it takes place in London. That's just so strange that they
1: would rename it there. I don't know.
0: The one thing we haven't touched on yet, and I figured we would get to it when we we talk about the movie, but the thing that is missing from this movie, there was a scene that was shot, but it was cut from the finished film. It was a scene where it's explained. Why the Allenbys were cursed in the first place. Ah. It featured a seven year old Joan Wells playing young Phyllis and Clara Blandick playing her nanny, Mrs. McBroom. The scene does exist. I've seen like some stills of that scene, but. For whatever reason, it was cut out of the movie. And I feel like kind of an essential scene. (laughs) Yeah. We hear about this curse of the Allenbees. There's a little bit about it sort of at the top of the movie. But the movie never attempts to explain the origin of that curse. We just have to take it on face value that this family was cursed. We don't know why. So, yeah, yeah, I feel like if there's one thing I would add to this movie, it's this scene. Just so we know where all this started.
1: Yeah, Dan, you have no idea how confused I was and Frantically filling in gaps Any way possible At one point Where I was like You know It's been forever Since I saw Werewolf of London Was that guy's name Allenby Did he have a daughter Is that considered A curse Am I missing something Like Please movie Please fill in the gaps And and you know Universal yeah. horror movies Are great At giving us A montage That kind of recontextualizes Everything up Until that point So I was praying For some kind of Flashback at some point Or someone opening up A journal journal at least and getting a voiceover as to like oh her father's journal here's the curse scene nothing i had to just leave myself to wonder that somewhere along the line they were werewolves and like she's just waiting for it to happen one day Yeah, I
0: think that one of the major flaws of this movie is that we never really get a sense that there is any truth to this curse Yeah, and so I never really believe that it's true.
1: Okay, I could see that too. Just a whole nother level of the control that is going on here. If you're
0: not going to show me a werewolf, if you're not going to explain to me what this curse is all about, how am I supposed to believe there's really a werewolf out there? You know what I mean? Like, I need something.
1: There's no pentagram, there's no poem, there's no full moons never mentioned like there's nothing
0: right i feel like it operates largely on the familiarity with werewolf movies it takes for granted that the people coming to see this have seen the wolf man or have seen werewolf of london and they're familiar with how werewolves work i think that just lazy screenwriting on their part to introduce a whole new character a whole new werewolf curse and then not elaborate on it yeah That's it. That's all I got note-wise. Okay.
1: All right. That's more than I thought.
0: That's the thing with these movies. The ones where I expect to not find a whole lot, I end up finding a fair amount. Stuff worth mentioning, even if it's just old credits. Okay, let's get into this. We, of course, open with our classic Universal logo. But again, for the second time in a row, we don't get the fanfare. We get movie score. Yeah. Which I kind of enjoy. I enjoy hearing that spooky music right out of the gate.
1: Yeah, yeah. I like it. It makes it feel fresh again for some reason. Even though I'm looking at the same visual, it's got a different vibe to it. You know, it doesn't feel like yep. Superman anymore. It feels like, uh-oh. Right. You know, I'm like, something bad's about to happen.
0: <laughs> the opening credits are about as exciting. Exciting as paint drying, I guess. At this point, (laughs) yeah. I was trying to think of one of the older ones. I think it was Invisible Agent, where it was just bland background with some text. This is just sort of a still shot of the mansion. It's fine. The old timey font is fun. Once we get past that, we get the only real context for the Allenby Curse. We get a shot of Big Ben and some text that reads, London, at the turn of the century, the legend of the Allenby Curse was almost forgotten. Until.
1: Yeah, so I was shocked immediately about how far back we're going in time. These Universal Monster movies have put us almost up until the millennium uh, to the year 2000, right? We are in the mid nineties yeah. with one of those mummy movies. And now we're going way back to horse drawn carriage and all that kind of thing. So if not for nothing, I really was digging getting back to that look in the vibe of the buggies and the cobblestone mm-hmm. and the London fog again.
0: Yeah. There's something about the sort of Gothic horror, like that yes. aesthetic. It just yeah. It's just essential, right? That's the sort of where the mummy movies start to lose me in that, like they're sort of fish out of water, Monster movies, right? Yeah, Dan,
1: because what do I hate the most? When the son of Dracula is riding shotgun in a car. I can't do that.
0: I should say that I think we both really liked how the mummy movies were sort of fish out of water stories and we, you know, we get different locations, but I mean, I will say that I don't prefer that to sort of the classic exotic locations of the original mummy movies or, you know, when it comes to werewolf and vampire movies, I like them set further in the past. You know, there's just something more romantic, I guess is a good word to use.
1: I don't mind it if they're modern, but I prefer period pieces when it comes to that kind of horror stuff because it just transports me there. It makes me feel like it could have happened easier longer ago. Like, it's just more realism somehow to me to feel like, oh, this is the 1700s sure there could be a Dracula roaming around but like 2022 eh, I don't know they might have found them by now
0: Stephen Moffat might have something to say to you about that can't wait to find out again we're turn of the century London the movie opens with Detective Latham and his boss Inspector Pierce and they have a meeting to go check out the park there's been some commotion in that park a lot of canine activity and Detective Latham suspects a werewolf right out of gate and of course inspector pierce thinks it's all horse shit yeah
1: you know we get it the molder scully thing going on nice and early here usually we have to wait till like halfway through the movie for that am i mistaken or does he say someone has been mauled like he's gonna survive but someone was attacked already right
0: yes now throughout the movie like we'll be talking about it but like throughout they've established that these dogs are a legitimate presence in that park and i'm suspecting that because you know there's no motive for anybody to go out on a killing spree yet so i suspect that this particular incident was probably legitimate mauling by one of these dogs
1: like some sort of accident of some kind okay i see what you're saying so like you don't think that the setup is on yet
0: it's tough to know
1: It is tough to know if it becomes, like, a case of covering tracks and killing two birds in one stone, you know? Use her to cover up my tracks and also drive her insane.
0: Sure, but, like, the whole killing spree kicks off once Phyllis, like, establishes that she's getting married next week. But they also need to start the rumor of the
1: werewolf, you know, so that Phyllis starts to wonder about, You know, her sanity and everything like that, too. So there's a lot of things that are like in play already.
0: Unfortunately, I don't think the movie really elaborates on this particular incident. There we go again, Dan. We are just giving
1: it too much credit sometimes.
0: Yeah, so we know there's been dogs sort of all over that park and potentially was one of them. Not sure. So now we have Detective Latham and Inspector Pierce in a carriage strolling through the park. And in the same scene, they pass by our principal characters, Phyllis Allenby and. Barrister Barry Landfield.
1: Barrister Barry. I never picked up on I love that. It, yeah,
0: I love it. His name's Barry and he's a barrister. That
1: was kind of a cool transition where the cops drive by and then we pick up with them on horseback. I thought that was pretty smooth. I was like... Yeah, it was
0: almost that. like a wipe without being a wipe. Yeah, yeah.
1: Or just sort of like a change on central action in the middle of like a scene like that was... I did not think it was going to be such a smooth transition like that. It was really cool.
0: Yeah, I like this introduction. We enter the scene with characters we've just met and we're going to be familiar with two more characters by the end of the scene. So as I mentioned, we meet Phyllis Allenby and Barry Landfield. Are they formally engaged at this point? And they're planning when the date's going to be. Right. They're definitely getting married and they have a sort of horse race because they're riding horses through the park. And they have a bet because they each want to get married at different times. She wants to get married in December and he wants to get married next week. They have like this race on horseback to decide when they're going to get married.
1: Yeah, I took it as they're already engaged. In- engaged and they just haven't decided on the day. And so they do this right. little like faux sort of contest that she ends up throwing because she really does want to get married next week. She didn't for whatever reason just didn't want to come out and say it. That's kind of a cute little thing. I like that the the idea that like oh the man thinks he like has the upper hand but it was her all along. They're sort yeah. of trying to I guess establish the dominance here that like this is going to be a mostly female cast and centric film so i thought that was kind of nice that it was like we're already poking fun at this guy a little bit
0: yeah and i I really like these two performers particularly june lockhart i think this is where i enjoy her most just because she's happy you know i I, I like seeing her as this young woman in love and you know this is the june lockhart i'm familiar with for the most part
1: yeah this is the one that gets in that spaceship with her whole family and the adventurous one
0: (laughs) yes and as they are wrapping up their engagement plans, they notice the police, the detective, the inspector, and a couple constables are there investigating the attack that happened in the park previous night. And of course, Phyllis overhears that they're suspecting a she wolf that's been roaming through the park. And that's like the beginning of her mania, right? Like from now on, from now to the end of the movie, she's just going to be stuck in this oh no, the family curse, it's me, so on and so forth.
1: It's almost like when some people have gone into like a trance for the whole movie. Too early. Yeah. I understand we only have an hour here, but give her like 15 minutes to be herself because it just kind of robs you of development that she is going to be basically doing this one thing for the rest of the movie, which is unfortunate because she's shown she could do more than one thing and they're going to just kind of regulate her to that role. At least she does it well. I never get bored of this
0: act. I mean, it's, it's only five minutes in, right? And she's kind of screwed. But the thing that has me a little bit curious, though, is that this is not the first attack in that park. There have been multiple attacks in that park, presumably dog attacks. That's where these rumors of a werewolf started. Did she not notice? Like, this is the first time she's heard that there might be a werewolf in the park. The timing of it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense.
1: My understanding is that this is the first time that like detective latham has actually uttered the word werewolf possibly you know so like i think until that has been sort of spoken out loud it's just been like oh there's like weird things or like a dog attack or something but once someone's like this isn't a dog because we see dog prints and then they turn into human footprints so the dog must have turned into a human you know so i think it's like that kind of connection that's starting to drive her yeah there's been deaths in the park and now that we think it might be a werewolf I think I'm a werewolf.
0: Yeah, I'm struggling with it a little bit. Again, I think we're, we're reading more into it than the movie probably intended. So the next scene, we meet Carol and we meet Hannah, the housekeeper, as she is on her way to the market to do her grocery shopping. She walks past. Carol, who has a note to take to her boyfriend, Dwight, who works at the market.
1: Her starving artist boyfriend.
0: She's uh, asking Hannah to deliver the note to him, you know, the way people used to do. But before she can leave, she gets stopped by Martha Winthrop, Carol's mother. And I mean, we get a sense of who Martha is right out of the gate, don't we? I mean, she knows the note was passed and she wants it. And she's not going to have her daughter going on dates with some starving artist who doesn't make any money. Real killjoy.
1: Yeah, definitely. And Hannah was, like, making faces back at her and, like... You know, not taking any of her shit and letting her know that she thinks, like, she sucks. She's like,
0: I don't know what note you're talking about. <laughs> Try to play stupid. She did her best.
1: And then when she had to give it up, she was like, fine, why do you have to be like that? Like,
0: <laughs> Yeah, I love that. See, that's another situation where I would have loved to have seen Uno O'Connor and how she would have played against Sarah Hayden. Probably would have been really good opportunities for comedy there.
1: The more that's going to come up, the more I'm probably going to wish that is the way it went down. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: But now we get sort of the history of Martha and Carol and how they relate to the Allenby family.
1: Yeah, so you're going to have to break this down again real slow for me.
0: Yeah, okay. So up until this point, Carol and Phyllis have believed themselves to be cousins. Yes. Phyllis has believed that Martha is her aunt. Yeah. And like they've lived in this house forever. And that's just not true. So big picture, Martha wants her daughter, Carol, to not marry some penniless artist, but to marry up to find a rich man like Barry who can support them because everything like the mansion they live in, all of that is going to go away as soon as Phyllis marries Barry. Because it belongs to
1: Phyllis. Correct. Because the
0: mansion
1: that Carol thought belonged to them her whole life, it turns out that Martha is just like the steward of the place. Like she's just like the innkeeper. Like she's the house watcher.
0: Yes, Martha is like the housekeeper for that mansion. More than that, she was the woman who didn't marry Phyllis's father originally, like years ago.
1: So here's where I kind of lost it. How does Phyllis end up with Martha and Carol? Because Martha mentions that her husband passed away, right? Yes. So what happened to Phyllis's father and mother? That's what I can't remember.
0: (laughs) So Phyllis's parents were killed. Murdered by Martha, possibly? No, they mention in the dialogue, I can't remember the specific lines. It's so quick. In the context, they are killed. And I think it's believed that it was the Allenby curse that did them in. They don't really explain it. So Phyllis's parents are dead when the movie starts.
1: So, okay, that blows my theory up because now I really believe that Martha killed them. Like, that's what I want to believe. (laughs) And raised Phyllis as her own. That
0: could be true at some point. You know what I mean? It could be. But years ago... Before Phyllis was born, before Carol was born, Martha was kind of dating Phyllis's father.
1: They were going to get married.
0: He was interested and she turned him down to marry a starving artist.
1: Right. That's why she doesn't like Dwight. Yes.
0: Right. And then a year later, Phyllis's parents were married and had Phyllis, you know, and all of that. But when Martha's husband died, leaving her penniless as a single mother, she got a job as the housekeeper for the Allenby's. So one can assume that she leveraged her history with Phyllis's father for a position in the house as a housekeeper.
1: Like, this is madness. Like, I love it.
0: It's like asking your ex to come work for you in your home.
1: On top of that, how does it work out after they're dead how Martha becomes the legal guardian of Phyllis and then never tells her own daughter Carol the truth about any of this until right now? Like It is awesome. It's so soap opera.
0: I cannot imagine how that was kept a secret for this long. No way! But yes, so Carol and Phyllis have grown up believing that she's Aunt Martha and that uh, Carol and Phyllis have been cousins. Like That's been their truth for what 18 years assuming they're they're late teenagers it's so batshit
1: crazy (laughs) like it's so convoluted
0: and so yeah Martha knows that if Phyllis marries Barry she will leave that mansion it will presumably be sold the Allenby estate and Martha won't have a home anymore you know and she doesn't want to be kicked out on on her ass so that
1: might not be true like that's just her fear but by all accounts like Phyllis isn't gonna kick her to the curb or leave or any and like even Barry says there's a line or something of like, oh, there's no man about the house. And they're like, well, that's going to change in like a week. So, like, I assume Barry's going to move in with them. I mean, that thing is a mansion. Like, there is rooms to spare. Give one to Barry the barrister. Give Barry the barrister the basement.
0: Yeah, I mean, a decent person would keep the staff on, right? You know, and just yeah. just incorporate them into the new home or whatever. But we're also talking about a woman who is insane.
1: Being driven insane, you could just as easily convince her she's not a werewolf but someone's trying really fucking hard in the opposite direction.
0: I mean, Martha. Martha is crazy.
1: Oh, yes, yeah. Martha is, yes, she is insane. Yes, you're right. She's
0: interpreting things the way she thinks they are and is acting based on those assumptions. So, yeah, she's viewing all of this through an insane person's perspective.
1: Yeah, yeah, she's already gone, I think, by the time the film has started. And then by the end, there's no question.
0: Her only motivation here is the preservation of herself and her daughter. And she's not willing to take the chance that they'd be Kicked out on the street. Yeah. And it's almost even more
1: for her own self preservation. Right. Like, she doesn't really care if her daughter marries anyone she loves. She's like, you're going to marry Barry. And Barry has no say in it. And Barry's like, I don't want to marry your daughter. (laughs) Like, I want to marry Phyllis.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, I don't know that she specifically wants him to marry Barry, but although she does. She says,
1: Barry, like, you're going to marry Barry. Like, I'm setting that up at the end. And she's like, but I don't love Barry. And Barry's in love with Phyllis. So it is that just blind madness, I suppose.
0: So a lot of like exposition here. It's a little bit convoluted, like you said, kind of soap opera-y. Okay, so with that backstory out of the way, Phyllis comes back to the house and we get this interaction with her and one of the German shepherds on the property, which I think is interesting. There are dogs all over this property and I feel like she should know that the dogs don't like her. But, I mean,
1: it felt like it was almost a new thing that these dogs suddenly started not liking her. Or maybe it's just because the movie just started. But one thing that is going to really drive me nuts, and I think it was definitely intentional, is, like, most of the soundtrack to this are those howling dogs. Like, those Mm -hmm, dogs are going to just be going and going. It's like when a truck's backing up on your block at 7 in the morning. It's just like, when are they going to
0: stop? I think there are only two dogs we ever see on screen at any one time. But the movie does feel feel like there are like 10 or 15 dogs in it. Yeah. With the sound effects, I'm just like, there's a lot of dogs in this movie. But yeah, we only ever see like two. I actually kind of liked them. That night, Phyllis decides that she's just kind of really can't shake this curse, the the thoughts in her head, so she um, decides to take some precautions, and she starts by keeping a lit lantern outside the window of her bedroom, which is said to ward off evil spirits and things, sort of a a superstition. She fully believes in the curse for some reason, and and is just deciding she's going to throw everything at the wall, every precaution she can take.
1: Yeah, I like the idea of hanging the lantern. It's a nice-looking shot, too, the way that it's all composed
0: and everything, so... Like I said before, I really like the cinematography here. And this is definitely one of those shots that stood out to me. I really liked this. But then we get a really cool scene with Phyllis and her Aunt Martha. Martha is kind of playing the loving, caring aunt and is just trying to put Phyllis at ease and decides that she's going to make Phyllis some more milk to help her sleep and hopefully get her to calm down a little bit.
1: And that, I think, is when I had my first sort of like, ah, there's stuff in the milk. I just went right to, maybe it's because I've seen like, that movie suspicion the hitchcock movie suspicion with with the milk at the end or whatever but it's just in my head i was like she's drugging her or something's going
0: on yeah i mean she's given off those vibes the entire movie up to this point we're not even 20 minutes in and i've already kind of got her pegged as the secret villain but the second she offers to like go down and get some more milk i'm like there's something in there and i think i had to like watch it a second and third time to confirm that the movie doesn't actually show it until the end but i'm like Hang on a second. I think they show you that she drugs her from the beginning. No, it's just that the movie is not really making any attempts to to hide the fact that it's her aunt. It's sort of like the shower scene in Psycho where you think you see more than you do. With Phyllis pacified with her warm milk that we don't know is drugged quite yet, she wakes up and she finds her slippers caked in dried mud. Her hands... Covered in blood. And her nightgown is wet. And so she's like immediately, what the hell happened to me last night? You know, Aunt Martha, she's just trying to downplay it as much as she can. Possibly sleepwalking. But Phyllis had a dream where she was like on a moor at night and she was stalking somebody. So she's having these vivid nightmares, right? They go down to breakfast. They're going to try and get on with their day as best they can. Carol comes down for breakfast. And I think that's when they learn that a little boy was killed in the park. The previous night yeah i was shocked to
1: hear that that they went little boy you know because like the first quote-unquote victim was like a man you know and mm-hmm. he was like slashed or scarred but like he was clawed and you know he's gonna make it though and then we go from that to like a little boy is dead basically like torn apart brutally killed
0: yes i think they describe him as being like torn into pieces yeah
1: like i don't need that (laughs) vision in my head in a universal monster movie you know like those are the people watching the movies usually are little kids
0: yeah so the carol reads the headline a small boy was uh, torn to pieces by animal of some kind they realize it was in the park half a mile from the home phyllis starts to lose it Yeah, this is going to be like a wash, rinse, repeat for the rest of the movie.
1: Yeah, pretty much. It kind of is. Well, the inspector will show up. Barry will show up. And every time someone shows up, they're not allowed to see Phyllis. She's like up in the room resting and this and that. I love the scene, though. I think it's next when, when the cops come, when the detective and the inspector come. And they're like, be careful in the park. A child's been murdered. I think it's a werewolf. I bet if you rewatched it, you could almost see Martha, like, get this idea in her head of, like, I'm going to fucking run with that, like, hard right right now, you (laughs) know? And not only that, like, to prove the detectives right, I'm gonna kill him next like a werewolf yeah that was kind of fun like the the idea that like this guy sort of signed his own death warrant where he like went and told the murderer like how
0: to murder him to make it look convincing <laughs> we'll get to that scene and uh, I'm gonna pay attention to that but yeah so as you mentioned Barry comes to visit and over the course of the movie this becomes sort of a thing where he, he wants to see Phyllis his fiance and Martha keeps explaining to him that she's too ill to take visitors
1: which she's really doing is sort of like copping him off to Carol. Yes. You know, it's
0: like, go spend
1: time with my daughter.
0: Yes, 100%. And I think they go on several dates, well, quote unquote, dates over the course of this movie. Martha is making sure Phyllis is sort of bedridden for uh, the foreseeable future, but at the same time is playing as this caring aunt, just trying to make sure that she feels okay and so on and so forth. But not to be led astray, let's not forget, Barry is a lawyer. He may not be an investigative cop, but he knows when something is just not right. And so he decides he's going to do some investigation himself.
1: I thought this was a cool move because it kind of gives the wrong impression. He goes like on a carriage ride with Carol and the whole thing is like he wants to find out like he's like carol i need to talk to you about like what's really going on like let's take a ride but then martha sees it and must be thinking oh good like they're getting along but then phyllis sees it and is like oh no they're getting along the misconceptions going on were more than i was expecting for this movie i'll just put it that way like there's a lot more of this like getting the wrong idea going on than i was expecting maybe too much
0: The first time Barry shows up, he shows up to see Phyllis. He's told that she's not feeling well and is not seeing anybody. But not to be dissuaded, he sneaks around back and runs into Hannah, the housekeeper. She knows something's up too. Like none of it smells right to her. I love this this little interaction where he decides he's going to sneak into the house and she's like, alright, I'm not going to stop you, but I didn't see you. And he's like, that's okay, I'll confirm that. You know, they got each other's backs, which is super cool.
1: Yeah, she's an ally, right? Like, she's, she's trying to help Carol get out of there. She's trying to help Barry get in there. She's trying to help Phyllis. Like, she just does not like Martha.
0: Presumably her allegiance is to the Allenby's of which Phyllis is one, so it makes sense. So, Phyllis is kind of in this situation where she is so overwhelmed with with this belief in the Allenby curse that she just like, she doesn't want to put that burden on anybody else and has pretty much decided that she, she doesn't want to marry Barry doesn't want to see him ever again, but he knows something's wrong and, and he's going to get down to the bottom of it.
1: I like the idea of Barry sort of like taking this whole thing into his own hands and investigate. Like, it's kind of like what guys do in these movies is like something's bothering my girlfriend. I'm going to get to the bottom of this and like find yeah. out like why she's cursed or like, you know, who's stalking her or or whatever. Like if it's a vampire, I'm going to go kill it so it could leave her alone. Like he's sort of in that mode now. And I like I like the way he's playing that.
0: Right. And so as, as he is on his way out, he runs into Carol, and the two of them go for a carriage ride. His plan is to talk about Phyllis. He wants to know about what's going on inside that house. That following night, Detective Latham arrives at the Allenby house, and he's there uh, investigating. I think because of all the dogs on that property, I think everyone kind of assumes that that's the natural spot to check out.
1: Yeah, yeah. So he wants to make sure that those dogs like haven't been off the property and you have like permits for those dogs. And they're like, oh, yeah. And he's like, I believe you. You know, I trust you. And this is also when he informs them, I think it's a werewolf. Don't kill me. And don't make it look
0: like a werewolf
1: did it, proving me right.
0: That Hannah, the housekeeper, like hates those dogs so much. She she just hopes that he's there to take them all away.
1: Well, they are. I mean, they are a nuisance. I mean, all, they will not stop. If I were neighbors, I'd be calling the cops like all day. All like, the time, got, yeah. There's got to be something you can do.
0: So Martha decides that while she has this Detective Latham there, she's going to try and get some information out of him. And she asks about the murders in the park and whether or not the police have gotten any closer to figuring out who might have done that to the little boy. And this is where, yeah, she learns that detective Latham suspects that it was a werewolf or, uh, or no, he says that a madman or a woman is responsible. I think he doesn't want to let on that. He thinks it's a werewolf. He almost
1: lets it slip. Yeah. You know, I think it's known that that's in the air, right? I mean, I think that's what she's trying to get him to say because Martha already knows that Phyllis thinks that she's responsible and that she thinks she's a wolf woman some type of something so yeah it must be really weird i would rewatch this scene specifically because martha is talking to the detective after having just murdered a child the night before and yep. just found out that she has an alibi for that Yep. No one's looking at her whatsoever.
0: Well, the following night, Phyllis is in bed and she starts to have what I'm going to call like a bout of anxiety. Right. She is just a ball of nerves just waiting for her her transformation to happen. She hears the dogs howling outside and starts stuffing cotton in her ears, which I kind of love, hoping that she can just drown out the noise of the howling dogs. This is a great scene where Carol comes in and, and they have a great conversation. And I think this might be the best case for Carol as an ally. Knowing what we know, I think in hindsight, she's legitimately trying to be a good friend.
1: I actually thought in this scene she was going to tell her the truth. but And I'm not quite sure what's stopping the character, the telling her the truth in this scene, You know what her mother told her prior. But this is a nice scene where she was like, yeah, I went on that ride. With Barry, and we kind of, like, talked it all out, and, you know, he loves you, and, like, I like this guy Dwight, we might never see him, he might not really exist. I'm waiting the whole movie for Dwight to show up. Yeah, it, it was really cool bonding moment there i guess that that i really needed to justify their relationship in some way right because like they feel like sisters but they're not and then you find out they're really not related and so like it's nice to know that carol doesn't care she's like what's the difference the way i look at it carol's like you are my cousin like we're related Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter whatever my mom said i don't care
0: basically been living as sisters or cousins for so long like they may as well be but uh, yeah I, I love that scene and, and so now phyllis is basically going all nancy thompson on us and decides she's just gonna drink coffee and never go to sleep again that
1: was a funny little scene because it definitely made me think of you know nightmare on elm street stuff <laughs>
0: yeah if i thought me going to sleep meant that i might turn into a werewolf and, and kill another child hell yeah i'm gonna be trying to stay awake as long as possible but phyllis doesn't actually have any werewolf transformation you know? You know she just assu- she goes to bed she wakes up and someone's dead i get why that would be her plan she puts on the lamps on the wall sconces and plugs her ears with the cotton and she's going to stay up as late as possible But that night We get our first hint of A werewolf attack This is like the first time we see park at night I think it looks great It's just called Public Park Uh (laughs) And so we've got Detective Latham And a bunch of constables Like a whole posse of them
1: There's a lot of people in the park this
0: night Yeah, and their goal is to go in there And round up as many dogs as possible And this is where we get Our second werewolf attack So as they are Inspecting the park, we cut back to to the Allenby mansion, and a woman whose face we never see, her face is kind of covered in this hood, leaves the house, shuts the gate. The German shepherds hop that fence, which is awesome. And she takes off into the park.
1: Yeah. We see this hooded figure once before extremely fast and it's like a quick cut. And I was like, what is that? Was that like a mistake? And then we see the dog leap back over the fence also. It's like really fast. It's like from the night before, but now we're seeing it play out in its entirety. This is happening night after night where like someone from that house shrouded is leading these dogs into the park. I was like, it's definitely not a werewolf. It's one of these dogs is what i'm thinking someone is commanding these dogs to attack
0: looking back knowing the twist i think it's meant to be a visual cue or like like something to tell us that it is not phyllis because of the way we saw the dogs interact with her earlier in the movie i think that's that's the only reason that scene is in there is to show how the dogs respond to phyllis because these dogs are not going after this cloaked woman they're not attacking her like she has no intention of bringing them keeps them locked behind the gate, and then they follow her into the park. They hop that fence and they go with her, not in a menacing way, or at least not as far as I can tell. If we know that it's Martha, then those dogs would know her by her scent, would want to accompany her into the park, probably. It's probably meant to be some sort of visual information for the audience. I
1: thought it looked cool. Like it was pretty ghastly. It was weird. It was like flowing like a ghost almost. I like the simplicity. I like the brevity of it. It just, it gave me a bit of a chill. I wasn't expecting it.
0: The imagery, even though she's wearing all light colors with the fog and everything, it does kind of remind me of like a Dracula movie. I get that. I think the visual is really effective. In the park, it's a pretty relatively quiet night. I don't get the sense that they've rounded up any dogs, but there's really <laughs> no no action to speak of. Detective Latham by himself, wandering through the fog with his cigar encounters this shrouded woman in the park and meets his end unfortunately
1: yeah very very high-pitched shriek from the detective and uh that's all that's all she wrote
0: yeah i was kind of bummed that he ate it this early but i guess because he's he's the only one banging the werewolf drum he had to go it's like he was
1: crying werewolf right like the whole time and this is how i see it is like he's like It's a monster. It's a monster. And everyone around him is like, no, it's not. No, it's not. And then he gets killed by what is presumably the monster. Now everyone believes him, but he's dead. Right. I love the tragedy of that. Like, I was right, but I'm dead. Turns out he's still not right. Like I said earlier, like he's sort of caused his own demise in a weird way by like letting it slip that he believed it was a werewolf so like if he dies and it looks like a werewolf then like everyone's gonna be convinced is the way that that i see it he's like the obvious target so he had to go
0: and i love the way it's staged they do it twice, I think, where Latham wounded comes stumbling out of the mist and like in the background, you see that hooded woman kind of disappear into the trees, into the bushes. Like everyone's all occupying this space, but the way they blocked it is really cool because there's stuff happening kind of in the foreground, there's stuff happening in the background. I actually really enjoy how those sequences are orchestrated.
1: Yeah, I like all of this park stuff, actually. It feels both like sort of like a maze. Like it feels big and small at the same time, depending on what they need it for. It's almost like got this weird mystical like quality to it. It's like always morphing or changing. And then we got like all the smoke helps sell that too. the Lost Woods or something. It's like, don't go in the park. You won't find your way out of the park.
0: <laughs> the following morning, Phyllis wakes up. Her clothes are muddy yet again. And she's got this like gardening handrake. In the bed with her as well, which I believe was a little bloody, more confirmation that she has become this she-wolf because of the family curse.
1: I love that moment when Martha's bedside, she's like, you know, it happened again. There was an attack and she's like, oh, no, look what's at your bedside. And she holds up like the bloody gardening tool. She put that there, you know, like she had that in her pocket and was like, look at this right here. I found this right by your bed. It must have been you.
0: It's such a lame weapon to... So I get why they went with that, because that tool could be used to create, like, scratches to make it look like a werewolf clawed at somebody's face or whatever, which is what happened. The reality of it is that it's just a, such a silly weapon.
1: Well, also, I think, what is she trying to do now is to say, like, Phyllis, you're not really a werewolf. You just think you're a werewolf. and right. like. Right. You've used this instead of your claws and like that instead of that. And like, you know, you don't transform. You go into some kind of trance maybe, but like you're not growing fur all over the place. You just, you're acting more canine, I guess.
0: Possibly, but I don't get the sense that Martha is trying to make Phyllis believe. Not yet. I don't get the sense that she's trying to make her believe that she actually killed somebody.
1: It's all laying the breadcrumbs, right? So she's never going to fully push her over the edge. She wants her to come to her own conclude, like jump on her
0: own. Right. I don't think she's explicitly acknowledging that Phyllis might have killed somebody. She's still trying to make her believe that it's in her head.
1: Which also, what's the point of that if the point is to make her go insane so that she lose the house, or she'll have to go into an asylum? Like, why is Martha constantly like, you're not insane? You know, like, you would think that she would want her to go nuts and go into the asylum.
0: Up to this point, I mean, she's still trying to be supportive, loving aunt, right? She can't immediately say, oh, well, you killed somebody you because know, now she's got to go to the, get the police involved she's still trying not to get the police involved here if she can just convince phyllis that she's crazy she can have her committed but if she acknowledges that phyllis kills somebody well then yeah she's got to call the police and that is the last thing that she wants
1: it's such a tightrope that she's
0: blocking, <laughs> It is. You know? it really is
1: which is why like this movie may not be great you know it's biting off more than it can chew for sure but it's got that interesting puzzle going on you know mm-hmm. like i just wish it was like a hitchcock movie you know which is right. like makes me want to go watch that or like gaslight by the kukor
0: yeah and that's that's sort of what i was getting at before is how like this one doesn't do that as well as other movies yeah yeah okay so barry is back and phyllis is still not wanting to see him And so he goes on another horseback ride with Carol. She's looking great. You know, she's wearing her riding pants and the whole nine. While they're on a ride in the park, they find more constables out there who are investigating the latest murder.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're like, all right, anyone you see, stop and frisk, you know, search them, like, whatever it takes, evil dies tonight.
0: So Barry tries one more time to get back into Allenby estate, and he has a conversation with Martha, who tries to pawn him off on Carol, but he's there to pick up Phyllis. And at this time, he doesn't take no for an answer. He decides he's going to take her for the ride, whether Aunt Martha says it's okay or not. And so he does manage to get her out of the house and onto the carriage.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't turn out to be, like, the greatest carriage ride. It kind of comes back to, like, bite him in the ass later, too. It starts off pretty well, but then, like, you know, Phyllis is just too into this, like, you know, I'm killing people in my sleep kind of thing and, like, couldn't really blame her, but... It's not exactly the enchanted evening he was expecting so
0: this is where Phyllis comes clean about what's bothering her with the important bit of this scene it goes along a little longer than it needs to but she explains the Allenby curse and that she believes that she is becoming a werewolf and is responsible for all of the murders in the park Barry doesn't believe any of that and at one point he starts like quoting Shakespeare
1: oh I couldn't believe it because there was wolf in like the, one of the lines you know and it was supposed yeah. to be relating to you know what she was going through but he just keeps going like he has memorized all of this shakespeare just through the poem from the other movie like and that would have been great you know
0: yeah the shakespeare goes on for like i was starting to get uncomfortable
1: dude too long it's like all it's like the whole second act of midsummer
0: just a just a weird move on his part it was funny
1: because like you know i was saying i was watching this with my girlfriend and it was like you know this is what you did before television you memorized shakespeare and like took buggy rides and quoted it to each other and nights of
0: passion (laughs) she mentions not just the curse but like you know the dreams she's had over time you know like the dreams where she changes into a wolf and stalks innocent victims you know barry just chalks that up to all all the stories she heard as a kid. You know, they made their way into her subconscious and are coming out through her dreams.
1: Dan, I have those dreams. Of course. I have dreams where I turn into a werewolf or I'm fighting a werewolf or something like, I'm, you know, I get that. That's just normal.
0: Once he starts quoting, it's Merchant of Venice for whatever reason. It sort of takes uh, Phyllis to the brink. She was having a decent day and, and now she's back to hysterics. It's time to go back home.
1: You know, it's time to go back home when your date starts crying as you're reciting Shakespeare.
0: That's always an obvious hit, yeah. So now with Detective Latham dead, Inspector Pierce has taken control of this investigation. He has rounded up another group of constables. Their plan is to go back to the park and basically arrest or shoot any suspicious character. Dan,
1: this is basically as close as we get to a mob in this movie, but yeah. like I was I was counting it. Like I know they're cops and all, but they've mobbed up. They have locked down this park and you know it's like watching the protests on the news and stuff they're just out in force right
0: now 100 percent. so that night while the inspector pierce and his man are in the park a woman with a hood walks out of the house and heads into the park but this time barry is sort of following her yeah I can't tell if we're meant to mistake it for somebody else, but it's pretty clearly Carol dressed up and, and heading into the park. So he's tracking her through the fog. We find out that she has gone out into the park to meet her boyfriend, Dwight. Which I
1: could not believe it. I thought for sure, like up until now, I almost thought maybe Carol is the werewolf and like Dwight doesn't exist. But no, he's a real boy.
0: <laughs> we're expecting to see this woman kill one of the cops or something. And they even play it up where she sneaks up on this man Sitting at a park bench and then like the reveal is that it's carol and dwight not actually the she-wolf yeah but doesn't
1: dwight get attacked before carol shows up
0: you might be right it's broken up a little bit
1: it almost is meant to be like carol got caught trying to attack dwight so she reveals herself but what really went down is like someone attacks dwight and gets like interrupted and carol shows up and is like hey dwight i came to meet you
0: barry runs into a couple of the cops who stop and frisk for, uh, like, to borrow an expression. They question him, find out that he is Barry Landfield. He's a barrister, the son of a famous lawyer in the area. They have that interaction, and while that's happening, this female figure sneaks up on Dwight sitting at the bench. We hear the sort of growling and snarling that we've become accustomed to with these attacks, and when the police and Barry go to investigate, we see that hooded female figure, sneak off into the background, into the trees. Barry gets up off the ground. He's been attacked by something. And as the men go running off after that hooded figure, then I think that's when Carol arrives. And she's wearing a very similar outfit.
1: Right, right. And and Barry accuses her because he's like, I followed you out of the house. It's gotta be you. But he doesn't realize, like, someone could have left after.
0: Right. So Barry only saw one woman or what he thought was just one woman. Right. So the next day, Barry comes back to the Allenby house and straight up accuses Carol of being the she-wolf right which she denies of course because she is not the she-wolf
1: yeah she's like I I was there to meet Dwight and prove to the audience that he's a real person that there's only five minutes left in the movie but he shows up
0: yes he cross-examines her in that drawing room and
1: he even says something like was this when he's like allow me to make my closing arguments yeah
0: basically Yeah.
1: what a dick like that's a shit line like if you're a lawyer out there and you're about to catch somebody like in real life and not in a courtroom, don't say that.
0: What I love about this scene is this is where Martha learns that Carol has been sneaking out to spend time with Dwight behind her back. She is more mad
1: about that than anything that's happened this entire movie. When she gets accused of being a child murderer, she's like, yeah, but Carol wanted to marry Dwight and you want to arrest me?
0: Well, he even says that he suspected Martha until he saw Carol sneaking out of the house.
1: Yeah, almost had it. So he
0: almost had it. So now, on like, I guess, what is the final night that we'll see in this movie? Phyllis is upstairs in bed reading a book on lycanthropy.
1: Yes. Which is one of the greatest shots in all of the Universal Monster history.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I actually like this because I've seen other similar images like promotional images that have been clearly, not photoshopped, but like doctored. Like there's a there's a shot of like the Dracula cast and like Mina has a, a big copy of the book Dracula in front of her and the whole cast is like around her and I'm like, alright, that's kind of cool. But no, here's a main character of a werewolf movie straight up reading a book called Lycanthropy. Fantastic.
1: Yeah, and Detective Latham wasn't completely off base if they're writing books about werewolves being real maybe he's heard something you know or maybe he's just ahead of his time who knows like i don't think larry's for another like 20 years after this movie's supposed to take place or something but i always love it too whenever we see references like this like the idea that these things happen in the real world you know it was almost like what was the dracula movie we watched where i thought someone was actually reading the dracula novel but it turns out he was just like reading a book on dracula It's like those kinds of moments, for me, carry a lot of weight. Like, I really do enjoy this moment of her reading about werewolves. Like, there's a book that she bought.
0: I dig it. I think it's one of the more uh, fun shots in the whole movie. I... Yeah,
1: especially since it's meant to be taken dead seriously too. Yes,
0: in in some way, it's it's kind of like like a Looney Tunes cartoon where they you know have a box uh, that just says dynamite on it. Okay, so as Phyllis is like reading her book on werewolf lore, she decides that she wants to go chat with Carol. This is where she tells Carol the whole story. We don't get to experience that scene unfortunately because it immediately cuts to a scene down downstairs carol comes down in a hood like a cape and is ready to go back out and her mother naturally assumes she's going back out to visit dwight again her starving artist boyfriend but the reality is that carol plans to go to the police and explain the whole story. She has learned all the facts from Phyllis and now, I guess, suspects that her mother has been responsible for all of the uh, shit that's been going on up to this point. And
1: confronts her, right? Straight up is like, why are you doing this? I'm not going along with you. I'm turning you in, you know? And and she's like, but all I ever wanted was, you know, the best for you, and I want you to marry Barry. And that's what she's like, fuck Barry. Like, I don't give two shits about Barry. You know, you're destroying My cousin's life, or like, I mean, not my real cousin, but like, you know, the person I, we're supposed to care about this person, and you're driving her insane. What is wrong with you, mom? It's not that it's a nice moment, but it's a very like strong scene, you know, like a a mother and the daughter going at it like that, and the one being like, I'm turning you in. Like, I'm not with you.
0: Yeah. I love as soon as she leaves, she's got two men who are like watching everything go down. Like, she walks out of the house into the park, and then Barry follows her and then Dwight he's like hiding out in there sees Barry go after her and he follows suit it's not a love triangle but I love that like sort of everyone's kind of like watching each other and following each other not really knowing what's going on back of the house Martha is heading upstairs with another glass of warm milk we're gonna learn that she plans to kill Phyllis she's followed by Hannah the housekeeper who knows something's up so yeah like everything is just sort of coming together here in the last few minutes and you can
1: start to see Martha starting to to shift a bit like in her demeanor like at least Sarah Hayden the actress like starts really showing it a little more if you know what i mean like she starts like tensing up and yeah. doing like almost this like Joan Crawford face or something like mommy dearest and shit and i was like wow she's really starting to scare me she's putting on a performance now where she went from the whole movie i mean we knew she was lying but the whole movie playing it so kind of motherly and gently and now like the gloves are off and it's kind of
0: intense she's so incredibly subtle but you can see that change the 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 sort of joan crawford mommy dearest comparison is is very astute like she's, she's not going full renfield crazy here right she's too dignified for that right yeah It's a very, very, very subtle change. And of course, we've got Hannah listening outside the bedroom door as Martha goes on her like supervillain monologue, explaining the entire thing, everything that's happened up to this point. Phyllis is like processing the drugs in her system. So we get those cool double exposure shots from her perspective as she starts to become drowsy. I kind of like those. Then Martha decides she's just going to explain the entire story, even though she should just kill phyllis right then and there and hannah is right outside the door
1: i kind of like that moment though like there's something so dreadful and not just in this movie but like if done right in horror movies and bond films but like that concept of revealing the whole master plan right before i'm about to kill you you know it's the ultimate self-gratification for the villain and then when they don't get to sort of kill their victim it is the ultimate gratification for us the viewer you know that they don't get to have that moment and like we get to witness like uh the rescue or whatever it was a little strange in this because phyllis is like dozing off and like she can't really hear her right so like you're explaining your master plan and you're gonna kill this person but like they're half asleep
0: I also think it would have worked better if we didn't know so soon that Martha was the villain. If this was a legitimate shocker, like, oh, wow, it's the end. Okay, well, then she's earned her monologuing moment but we've all kind of known it was her this whole time and so the monologue seems unnecessary i think she plays it well it's a pretty over-the-top villain monologue and she never really gets cartoony about it which i like she kind of stays on this side of believable yeah yeah because she's not like
1: ranting and raving she's like trying to hold it all in Mm -hmm. is how it feels like she's struggling to keep it together and to like not even say these words like it was a very different performance than i was expecting because usually these people go over the top and and she was going in the opposite direction it's like trying to keep it as composed as possible but just not able to
0: but she is interrupted by hannah as she like peeks into the room martha notices and hannah flees she runs down the giant staircase and this might be my favorite detail about this ending is that martha in her pursuit she slips on the stairs, takes a fall, and ultimately, she's impaled by the knife in her hand, and, and so she kind of dies by her own hand, completely by accident.
1: This, I thought, was a really good ending, and you know, these movies always end so swiftly, and I knew something yes. was going to happen in like the last two minutes to wrap this all up, but we get a great stunt, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The stair fall is terrific. The whole concept of her falling on the knife is very poetic, you know? It works beautifully. Like, she murdered a child. Yep. She murdered a ten year old boy or something, and then killed like a police officer and maimed several other people. Like, there's no way she's getting out of here alive, and I like the idea that no one else had to do the dirty work. Like there's something sort of like very satisfying about that. All these other people are so sort of like pure on that level that I didn't want them to do
0: that. I think we talked about this in our last episode with House of Dracula because of censorship. Larry Talbot was not able to turn into a wolf man and kill anybody because he was going to kill the villain at the end you know what i mean like if he killed anybody as a werewolf he was not able to live by that point they were trying to avoid having one of their heroes do the dirty work and i think i mean this works well enough to have your villains slip on the stairs and accidentally fall on their own knife Because then, you know, nobody's a murderer except for the person who's now dead.
1: Yeah, ordinarily, I wouldn't enjoy that as much. But there's something so nice and clean about it for this particular story. It, It just feels like the Just Desserts kind of... Yeah. ending. Uh, yeah, and, and it fits well for it, so I was actually kind of impressed. I was like, cool, this is a good ending for this story, like, and and a good end for this villain.
0: She's got a definitive ending. She is dead dead. So that's it. That's the end of She-Wolf of London. Wild. Yeah, do you have anything you want to add before we uh, wrap up?
1: Yeah, yeah, so in closing, my closing arguments, <laughs> it's not great, but I feel like there's still enough here to peek your interest. Interest. and you know it's just such an oddity like it's so weird that universal was like we're done like we have no more monsters like we're gonna try and do like a serious thriller now but like we can't fully kind of let go of our roots so we're gonna like do a bait and switch and call it she-wolf but there won't be a real monster but like there's a killer in it but like it's not supernatural just so many strange things floating around in the thoughts of this movie <laughs> you know as to like how it came to be at this particular moment. But like, I still have to say, like, on some level, I admire it for its attempt. You know, it's trying to do something way outside of its reach that I didn't think was that far out of its reach. Because Hitch is at Universal, Hitchcock. So like, you think some of that would rub off on the other side of the lot, but I guess not. You know, it goes to show those movies are prestigious for a reason. And this just couldn't duplicate that kind of stuff that's the stuff that's out there right now you know that's what people are paying to see that's what they want to see they don't want to see frankenstein's monster unfortunately and maybe they don't want to see an actual werewolf but i don't know that they wanted to see this Either, At least not from Universal, not at this
0: moment. She-Wolf of London is kind of too little too late. I admire Universal wanted to do... Kind of like take a page out of Val Lewton's playbook, you know? If they were going to try something different. I I just think that they waited too long to do it. It had already been done better by other people. And they had hung on to their monsters too long. And now this movie, which might have been better five years earlier or six years earlier, now kind of just It feels a little bit stale, a little bit hackneyed. They don't have their their best talent. We're getting sort of like C and D level filmmakers at this point. And who's to say they, they may not have been good at this sort of a thing if they had done it earlier. Who knows? I just think that to do it in 1946 after everybody else had kind of been doing it. What's the point?
1: I guess ultimately where I come down is not that universal horror isn't sophisticated. Okay. But the universal monster stuff lately isn't. And to lump this in with that, I think was the problem, right? It's like to say that this is part of the monster series as opposed to just part of their horror series or their thriller series, I think that was the big misstep. Like including it in here or even titling it wolf anything might have been part of the issue.
0: Right. I I mean, I should say I don't know that Universal necessarily considered this part of their Universal Classic Monsters.
1: Oh, you think it's like a marketing thing? They just shoved it on the set?
0: Maybe. I don't know. I mean, the reason we included it here is because it's part of the Wolfman Legacy Collection. So when you buy the Universal Studio Monster box sets, this is always included with the Wolfman. And so I felt obligated to include it. But it doesn't really feel like a universal monster movie kind of like the way invisible woman doesn't feel like a universal monster movie but that was included in the invisible man legacy set so this is a weird curio i don't think there's ever a time when i'm thinking you know what i want to watch she wolf of london i watched this movie because it's got a young june lockhart in it and i think that's pretty cool but yeah if i want to watch a horror mystery kind of thing i think i mean i'm probably going to go with val luton's work before this it's at the bottom of my list for universal monsters. I don't think it's a bad movie. I just think that it's unexciting. I think that's really what I'm ultimately coming out of this saying: it's, is that it doesn't do anything particularly well. It's not the most exciting thing. It's sort of middle of the road, and for that reason, like if it was spectacularly bad, I might rank it a little higher because at least then it's you know the entertainment value might be a little higher. This doesn't even spectacularly fail, so yeah, it's just kind of bland. You know, unfortunately, I think that's the
1: perfect word for it. Like as much as you know, I've talked about the things I enjoy that's not to say like it's a great movie or anything but we found stuff to talk about and I really believe in the things that I've talked about tonight you know but overall like yeah this is disappointing you know you want to see a female werewolf running around doing stuff that old universal spirit but it's just not here you know and that's unfortunate and as good as it is it's not good enough and if you know you want a werewolf mystery go check out werewolf by night right now on disney plus or something like that like that harkens back to these old universal monster movies and tries to sort of you know pay homage to it and has like a nice fun little thing going on there mystery wise so but i can't foresee myself rewatching this in its entirety in the near future. I mean, you know, this is the kind of thing you bring up as like trivia, perhaps down the line, Um, or you pop on like a scene or two just to admire like an acting bit or something like that. Otherwise, uh, there's no real monster running around this time.
0: Well, with that, I think it's time for us to disappear into the mist ourselves. But actually, before we get into our sign off, we have listener mail. All right. We have some more Listener mail. So let's do that and then we can get out of here for real. Okay, so I got an email this week from a man named Brian Parks and he says, Hello to Monster Mike and Invisible Dan. Love the show. A buddy of mine does a Star Trek Warp Top 10 podcast, which he has me guest on mostly as a gag as I know nothing about Star Trek, but I grew up loving the Universal Monster films. So I thought maybe I could do one on them. I searched and found you guys. Glad I didn't start one. You guys have it on lockdown. Truly look forward to it every month i love the list of other monsters hoping you guys do others top five actors actresses well first of all i'm gonna interject here and i think that anybody who wants to do a podcast about anything whether it be universal monsters or whatever you should do it don't let us stop you from doing a monster podcast because i think the more the merrier as far as i'm concerned definitely so he continues wanted to ask as i'm already dreading the show ending when you get to the end do you guys plan on continuing i was thinking maybe you could go back after the monster films and cover some of the other universal horrors like the karloff lugosi black cat The Raven, The Invisible Ray, and others. I remember the old Universal video cassette collection, and they had one like Island of Lost Souls, which I loved, and I believe was a Paramount film, but somehow Universal released it in their collection. I did a little bit of research on this, just to interject one more time, and it turns out that Island of Lost Souls was indeed a Paramount production, and was also included in that VHS collection that Universal put out for the Universal Monsters. In February 1958, MCA acquired Paramount Pictures' pre-1950s sound feature film library through a newly created MCA subsidiary, EMKA Limited, or EMKA Limited. On June 18, 1962, Decca Records shareholders agreed to be bought out by MCA. At the time, Decca owned an 89% stake in Universal Pictures. By the end of 1962, MCA assumed full ownership of Universal. Wow. So as far as distribution goes, they could release Island of Lost Souls because they owned all the Universal and they owned all that pre-50s Paramount stuff. They could sort of release it all together despite the fact that Universal had nothing to do with island of lost souls wow cool so brian continues anyway sorry about the novel you guys are truly great thanks for doing this looking forward to the next one i've never seen she wolf of london i'll check it out before your next show thanks fellas best batty brian parks
1: awesome thank you so much for writing us batty brian <laughs> it is <laughs> thank you for listening to the show i'm so glad you found it and this is great dan we've got a, a email train going i want it to keep going so <laughs> keep writing those emails in this is awesome
0: I, I listened to a little bit of that star trek the war top 10 podcast. And it's pretty fantastic. You know, I've been working my way through Star Trek, just spent about three months watching the original series. And I'm now working on the first season of The Next Generation. And Brian, if you're looking for a place to start, I think particularly because you like older things, older movies and TV shows, I think you could handle watching the original series. But I also would strongly recommend Strange New Worlds. That was the sort of new Trek that got me motivated to go back and watch the original series and, and work my way through the whole franchise so strange new worlds also really cool um and i really enjoy warp top 10 podcasts so our listeners should definitely check that out if they are uh into star trek as well as for the future of the podcast uh i've said in a couple of places i think on social media and whatnot i know that uh, once we get to the end of this cycle we definitely want to take a break but we do have some ideas as far as where we're gonna go next i don't think you'll have heard the last of the monsters that made us and there's also other stuff we want to do stuff that doesn't necessarily fit under that Monsters That Made Us Umbrella. And I think that you might see just a whole new podcast from us uh, at some point in the future. So yeah, we definitely have plans beyond this. It's just going to be a matter of time, figure out what specifically we want to do. But don't worry. Yeah, is there anything else you, you want to add on to that, Mike?
1: Yeah, whenever we know, you'll know. Basically, whatever we decide, we'll let you know as soon as possible. And we, I just you know hope that uh, whatever that is, you continue to listen. So thank you very much.
0: Yeah, we appreciate all of our listeners here and we would we love hearing from you so if you feel like you want to send us some mail please do so you can reach us at the monsters that made us at gmail.com we're going to be back our next episode is going to be November 25th that's on Black Friday and we're going to be discussing what might be my favorite horror comedy of all time Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein
1: I cannot wait
0: I watch it every year regardless of this podcast I cannot wait to watch it again so looking forward to that episode in the meantime you can follow us on Twitter at Monster Made Pod, on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us. And as I mentioned, our email is us at gmail.com. Please send us some mail. We really love reading it on the air. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Colon. Mike, where can listeners find you?
1: You can follow me on Twitter at The underscore Meister. and you can hear all the other shows that I'm on at CageClub.me, Facebook.com slash CageClub, or at CageClubPod on Twitter and
0: Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do so at Patreon.com slash that made us you can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on itunes we are currently in the top 40 podcasts in the itunes film history podcast category so the more five-star reviews and ratings we get the more it'll bump us up further up so that more people can find the show can't forget about our t-shirts on t you can find the link for that in our aforementioned twitter and instagram bios for all other things cage club related head on over to cageclub.me that's cageclub.me stay spooky everybody